Neil Gibb is a fucking savage. Like this dude is an animal. He's a property developer and he's making bank. He's doing very, very well for himself. He runs an awesome company with a really, really cool culture. He's happily married. He has his health in order. This dude is ticking all the boxes in life. And when I look at guys like this who are ticking all the things that pretty much every single man wants, there's often a lot of things that we can learn from. So if you are someone who wants to be better in terms of relationships, better in terms of health, better in terms of career and really fucking dominate and make your mark and make your legacy, you're gonna be able to pull a lot of gems out of this interview. I hope it helps you. And we're live. Thanks for coming on, sir. No problem, mate. You're very welcome. Mate, you've had a, uh, I'd love to start first of all, like with your story and where, like where you've come from, because obviously you're not from around these parts. You've had a bit of a winding pathway to getting into property development. And I mean, there were a lot of guys, but I mean, even for me, when I was younger, actually, I wanted to go into property development. That was one thing that I wanted to do. And I'd love to, out of all the property developers I've met, every single one's got a fucking weird story about how he got there. It's never like you go to school, you go to uni, you become a property developer, right? And you make millions of dollars. Like that'd be Mm. nice, but it's just simply not the case. Like how did you get started or what was your pathway from the time you go from school and whatnot all the way through? Yeah. So I was born in a small town in the northeast of England called Middlesbrough. And Middlesbrough is to try and compare it to something in Australia. It's probably like a a Gladstone over in Queensland or a Port Hedland in Western Australia. It's just a small, hardworking town and everybody there, there was a big industrial estate there and everybody worked in it. And then the offshore thing kicked off over in Northeast England as well. And a lot of people worked offshore as well. So it was just a town where everybody- Doing what, sorry? Like working offshore doing what? Working offshore on oil rigs as electricians and pipe fitters and stuff like that. And there was never- no one ever said to you, work smarter, not harder. It was just the harder you work, the more money you're going to earn. And to some degree, that's true. But there is a smart element that needs to come into it in the future. So I just worked hard, worked hard. I was an electrician. I was earning good money. But I always had a desire to work in a different country. And Australia and working offshore in Australia was probably the highest paid gig you could get as an electrician. Uh, so when I was 27, I came over to Australia with a bag of clothes and my passport. And luckily... I ended up right at the start of a big oil and gas boom, and I ended up working on the Gorgon Project in Western Australia. I ended up in Papua New Guinea. I ended up in Queensland for a little bit. And I, I ended working up working in Papua New Guinea, if you don't mind oh, me asking. Mate, it was crazy. We flew into Port Moosby, and then we took another two-hour twin prop flight to a place called the Highlands Province. And we were literally working in the middle of, in the, middle of the jungle, and ExxonMobil had built this big uh, gas refinery plant up in the hills. And it was a caged sort of compound that we were working in. But outside, the, the locals were just walking past with like big 10-inch machetes over the shoulders like it was normal. So it was a, it was an experience. Fucking nuts place. I had a, a friend yeah. of mine uh, by the name of um, Luke Richmond. He's like an explorer. He's, he's fucking nuts. Like the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Really beautiful human being. But he's insane. And he was going and traveling through PNG. And he got – they were there with a, with a, with a tour guide, right? 
And when they were traveling somewhere through there, I don't know what he was doing, doing whatever you do in PNG, right? And he was going through there and they stopped by with a tribe. But when they were staying in with this tribe, a rock fell off and killed one of the kids, like fell off a ledge and killed one of the kids. Because they were there, the tribe wanted to go and kill them, like kill one of them, like an eye for an eye type thing. Like absolutely fucking nuts. And then he had to go through and like they had to go and escape that situation because that was pretty hairy. Had to go through and escape that same story as well like machetes just walking around like everyone's carrying fucking machetes everywhere and then ended up running into one of the mines out the front of the mines is like armed guards everywhere which is like totally different to here in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> There's like armed guards everywhere. So they go from running away from machetes to being, having guns being pointed at them and eventually got out somehow. I can't remember that story. Yeah, yeah. There was a, when we got there, there was a three-day induction and two of them days were on the Papua New Guinea culture and like how the people are, why they're that way, uh, the traditions that they still have. It was a crazy place, man. They still trade their daughters for pigs because pigs are seen as wealth in their country. So they'll have kids and they'll trade their daughters in for three or four pigs. So, so one of the other richer guys who has lots of pigs just swaps them for a, for a daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a bit different. It is different. It's PNG, isn't it? Where they have, where Coke is cheaper than water. Is that right? Like Coca-Cola. I'm not too sure, mate. We never made it in many shops. We, um, (laughs) we we literally flew in from uh, Brisbane and then we got tucked to a fence compound where our food and drink was provided. And then we got flown up to the present, uh, the province the next morning. Yeah, right. Yeah, and everything was provided for us there again. And then we came back. So, yeah, I didn't get much chance to go shopping, unfortunately. Next time. You have to take <laughs> the business back there. That's not all that bad, love. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so we, I, I went through this transition and basically was sucked into this big oil and gas boom. And the money was incredible. I ended up working offshore on the Wheatstone project for Chevron and I was working half of year, half a year and getting paid the most money I'd ever been paid. But I was always looking forward and I noticed that after the Wheatstone project, there was no other projects coming up. So we started looking into alternative ways to uh, make money and property was always one of these things. I had a lot of people in the UK that had made money from property, but they'd never showed me how to make money from it myself. I was the guy that always went around there and fixed the properties up for them, like putting kitchens in and rewiring houses for them. I got pulled into a seminar one day by one of my friends who was from the UK and I was living with him at the time. And I couldn't believe it. There was a guy on stage that was basically telling people how to make money from real estate and selling a course based on it. So I joined that course. Sorry, I didn't join that course. I was I was just blown away by it. But the guy said to me, oh, don't join the course. I'll just tell you how to do all this. This was the guy that I lived with at the time. Oh, the guy that you live with? Yeah, yeah. He's one of my best friends, yeah. He's back in the UK now and he's killing it over there property-wise as well. So anyway, we came out with that course and then a few of the things that popped up on my Facebook about other educators that were teaching people how to make money from it. And the first education course I actually paid for was a lady in Queensland called Dimna Boholt. I'm pretty sure she lives in the Sunshine Coast as well. She could do. Yeah. And her course was called I Love Real Estate. So we joined I Love Real Estate and we basically followed the steps in the course, pretty much like I followed the steps in yours. And it's funny this because all this education that's out there, if you do follow the steps in it, you will become successful. <laughs> funny, funny that. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, so we, yeah, we, we joined Dimpner and started following a lot of the stuff in there. And at the time she had a, like a 2IC that was working with her called Ian Ugarte. Again, yeah. lives in the Sunshine Coast. Yeah. And we joined Ian's course. And that really was a catalyst for us to like 
build out, start our business and build our business to where it is now with a focus really on share house accommodation and what we call HMOs, which is house of multiple occupancy. So in the last four years, we've built or renovated 70 properties and we've got a property management business, which we, we've probably got 340 rooms in there that we manage at the minute. By the end of the year, with all the construction that we've got going on and all the renovations we've got going on, we'll have 450 rooms in there. Yeah, right. Why'd you choose that model? Because no one else was doing it in Perth. I'd seen it in the UK as a successful model for some of my friends and no one was really doing it here. Um, it was only really getting done around universities for student accommodation, but there was nothing in the suburbs. So the first one we did was our principal place of residence. And we took a bit of a punt because we didn't know whether it was going to work. We actually moved in with the mother-in-law for a couple of weeks. How was that? Uh, well, that's how committed I was to making this work. <laughs> Luckily, we were only there for six weeks because we filled the house. So the house should have rented out for $400 a week. We filled it for $860 a week. So we doubled the rent by renting the rooms out room by room. And then we ended up renting an apartment in the CBD. Um, so I, we were only with the mother-in-law for six weeks. Perfect. Worked out yeah. well then. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and so how many employees do you have now? We've got 20 employees now uh, spread across two different businesses. So we've, we've got the property management business, which has got five property managers. We've got a small marketing team in there too. And we've got my development arm, which... I'm responsible now for finding sites that we can build new product on or finding houses that we can renovate and put additional en-suites in. And we've got the rest of the teams basically in there support with virtual assistants and stuff like that. All right. So over, over what period did you grow this? So we, we sat the course with Ian four years ago. So probably took us say six to eight months to do the first house ourselves. And then from there, we, we built it up from there. Yeah, right. So what's your turnover right now? Uh, last financial year, our turnover just for the two businesses with 3.2 mil, and we did $6 million worth of development as well, property development. That's not a bad little bit of growth. Mm. It's been a crazy journey, mate. And you know, when you're in the trenches every day doing what you're doing, you don't realize some of the things that you're actually achieving until you take a step back and think, wow, we have, we have created something really special. Well, that, that's a really cool point, man, because most of the time we're so obsessed with creating more and more and more and living in the future of just mm. going next, 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 next. We never actually take two seconds to smell the roses, so to speak. I remember someone told me that when I was 20 and funnily enough, I didn't listen to them to that advice till I was 27, right? <laughs> <laughs> but so for you, like, what do you do just to smell the roses? What do you do to actually enjoy your wins? Well, for the first two years, I probably didn't do anything to celebrate any wins. I was your typical, just work harder, 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 setting goals, achieving them goals, didn't celebrate anything, just set higher goals and higher goals. And I was talking to my mentor, Ian, and saying, like, I, I don't feel like I'm going fast enough. And he was like, are you serious? Have you even thought about what you've done, what you've created, everything that you've got going on, the people that you employ? And that year, the end of that year, so the end of the actual physical year, December, me and my wife went to Bali. And before we set our goals for the year ahead, we actually wrote down what we'd achieved for the year pre previously. And we were actually blown away by what we'd done. It was, it was crazy. What effect did that have on you that you weren't celebrating any of your wins? Well, at the time, because I wasn't celebrating them, it didn't really have much of an effect on me. But now we do celebrate the wins. It's so much more rewarding when you're doing things and actually celebrating your success. In what way is it more rewarding? It, it makes you realize what you're actually achieving. If you're just doing it day after day and you're achieving things, but you're not actually giving yourself recognition and a pat on the back for these things, then what's the point? Because you're never going to be satisfied. Does it have an effect on your team? 
like when you actually recognize your wins versus when you don't? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah so it'll affect morale with the team, with the team that we've got now. And because we've been celebrating the wins for the last 12 months, <laughs> probably 12 to 18 months, we have been celebrating wins quite well. So we have, we'll have team lunches, team dinners. We took the team out the other week. We actually employed two new people probably six weeks ago. So we brought them in, we did a team introduction, then we all took them out for some dinner and some drinks. It definitely helps the team bond more outside of work when we're celebrating things with them. But yeah, for the first couple of years, I was probably really bad at it. And I was probably just cracking the whip and cracking the whip and cracking the whip. Yeah, looking back now, probably it's definitely not the right thing to do. 100%. We, we work with a lot of companies like in building out their vision, their mission, culture, values, like all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that I've had to coach so many different business owners on is just be fucking happy. <laughs> like just go yeah. and smell a couple of wins every now and then. Because yeah. if you're never happy, you're never satisfied, that lack of contentment goes and it festers throughout the whole team, doesn't it? Yes, it does. 100%. So, so that with these courses as well, the one that you've done, you know, there's always the rule in like any of these these coaching courses is that 20% of people will do you know reasonably well, 10% will do very, very well, and 70% will fuck it up, right? Yeah. Why do you think that you did so well and turned you know, effectively $0 into a shitload of money into a business that's doing $3.2 million a year with $6 million of de- de- developments? I've, um, I've always been really driven. For some reason, I think it's just the upbringing I had, probably this hard work ethic that's been drilled into me. So when I've been given something to do, I'll follow it to a T. So I'm, I'm a, I love a good system, good some good procedures. So if a course is structured in the right way for me to follow, then I'll follow that course to a T. And that's what I did with the property development ones. And that's what I've done with your course as well. And it's I'm seeing some good results. You are the most compliant client we've ever had <laughs> in yeah, the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Every week I catch up with Sean Bailey, Sean's, Sean's Neil's, Neil's coach. Every time I catch up with Sean, he's like, Neil's fucking crushing it. He's fucking smashing it. He just does everything. Like every single time we tell him to do something, he does something. And he's getting the best results out of everyone too. Funny <laughs> that, huh? I, I didn't realize how bad my health was getting at one point until I actually joined JCF. Yeah, well, let's talk about that, man. Like, why, why did you choose to, to, to reach out and have a chat with us in the first place? I tried all of the plans out there. I tried high carb, low carbs, high fats, low fats, proteins, hit training, bodybuilding, well, you name it. I've, I've probably tried it. I've done CrossFit. I've done them all, but I could never really shift the body fat that I needed to shift. My weight never really dropped down. I found some of the diet plans that I was trying to do that were really, really difficult. I was like spending a fortune on food every week. It wasn't sustainable for me. And then I was spending too much time in the kitchen on a Sunday trying to prep all that food as well. And I was getting very close to actually throwing the towel in with, with fitness because I'd been training at the start of the year. I was training with a personal trainer and he was, a, he was an ex-British army. He was actually playing rugby in the British army. So this guy was like super fit, being a PT as well. So this guy was putting me through my paces and I was working hard and I was coming out of them sessions and I was absolutely fucked. And it got to the point. I must have lost like a kilo in three months and my body, I didn't feel like my body fat was shifting much. I didn't feel like my muscle mass was growing up. And I think to myself, if this isn't going to get me to where I need to be, then this probably isn't for me. And I should probably just take up something easier than this. Like just, just walking something nice and simple. Stamp collecting. <laughs> yeah. But, and then I seen your Facebook advert and it sort of, it felt like it was just directed at me. It was talking about can't lose fat, not sleeping well, feeling tired and drained, low sex drive. That was something that I knew was happening, but I didn't dare address it as well. Yeah, all these things just kind of reached out to me. And then I started watching some of your online stuff as well. And it, 
you were the first person I'd seen that wasn't talking directly about just going out there and lifting weight and eating right. It was about lowering your stress. And in the back of my mind as well, I knew my stress had crept up building my business because we'd be doing 12, 16 hour days at some points, working seven days a week. Even on holidays, I was taking my laptop with me and I was replying to emails and stuff like that. So I wasn't really getting any downtime. What did the missus think of that when you're working that much? She was working with me. So yeah, we're we're in the businesses together. So luckily it wasn't too bad, but we knew it was affecting our relationship as well because we weren't spending any quality time together. So yeah, we joining JCF was just going back to like you, you were the only person that was talking about the nervous system and all these other things, the endocrine system, the digestive system, things that nobody else was talking about. Everyone else was just talking about calorie deficits and getting your food right and training right. But I tried it and it wasn't working. So I reached out to your guys and yeah, we were getting some really good results. My body fat's dropped down from 22% down to 17%. And I'm now sleeping from five and a half to six hours a night. I'm now sleeping seven and a half to eight hours a night and sleeping right through as well, which is great. It's a big win, man. Yeah, it's a massive win. Thanks really, really big win. Yeah, my pleasure, man. My pleasure. <laughs> so with, with the sex drive one, like that's that's a huge one. I don't know if you, you're you cool with talking about this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. So like, that's like the touchiest thing, but it's actually one of the most common issues I see when I talk with guys is issues around, around sex drive. So like what was happening with you? Like you just didn't want it, didn't feel like it, didn't work. Like what was going on in your in your search? Yeah, it. I just felt like... By the time we got in from work, I could never be bothered. But And then by the time we got into bed, I was like, well, I'm getting into bed to sleep and I can't really be bothered about it again. But I could see my wife trying. She was trying, like, trying to, she was putting the effort in and I was kind of knocking it back, which obviously was not, was affecting her confidence. In um, what way? There was questions whether I still loved her. Like, are we still as, as solid as we once were? And for me, in my mind, I was like, my relationship is absolutely solid. But without a sex life in there, it's a big part of a relationship. So yeah, it's always, doodle always worked when I needed it to. But it, I just never had the drive like I did when I was in my 20s to just like go in there and tear her clothes off. And it wasn't because I didn't find her attractive, because I do. Yeah, for some reason, it was lacking in me and I didn't know what it was. It's funny, isn't it? How much of it, like, because we, we're always told that a relationship doesn't have to have sex. It's not all about sex. It's what we're always told over and over and over again. That's a fucking lie, isn't it? Sex is a really, really important part because when you have more sex, you communicate better. You're more intimate. You're more loving. You're more caring. You're more You show the other person, like literally sex is like the ultimate action and the ultimate act of saying, I am attracted to you. Yeah. Like it's theirs. Like if you weren't attracted, old mate wouldn't work. You know, it just, it just wouldn't, wouldn't happen at all. Yeah. And it's like, if, if you have like a really healthy sex life, it's amazing. But as soon as that starts going, it affects, it actually is weird. It doesn't affect so much consciously the party who's not interested in sex anymore, but it crushes the other side. And then from there as well, like because a lot of guys in business say, I don't have time. It's like, look at the second order. How many fights do you reckon you had because of that? Because you didn't make time for sex. And then how much time do you reckon you spent on those fights, time and emotional energy and all that sort of shit, and then losing more sleep and then being more tired the next day. And then this cycle, which just keeps going on all because you just didn't bang your missus when you should have. <laughs> right. Yep. It's but it's true. crazy. It is. And I just felt sluggish all the time as well. And that probably affected my sex drive too, because I didn't feel confident in myself. 
How so? Like I said, I'd been working hard, training hard, and I was expecting to see results in my body and I wasn't getting them. And I just thought, fuck, this is me getting old. I'm already got, I've got no hair, which is obviously passed down from my dad, but <laughs> like things like just getting older and feeling older. I was like, fuck, this is it. I'm not even, I'm 39 now. And like my sex drive's going, I'm, I'm basically just going to get a dad bod and I don't even have kids yet. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing how once you do start to see results when you're training, how it affects everything from your mindset, your love, your sex life, your work life, absolutely everything. How did your, your mindset and work life change? Because it gets to a point where if you keep trying something over and over again and getting the same results, it's the definition of insanity, isn't it? <laughs> and that's where I was really at. I felt like I was banging my head against the wall and just not getting them results. And being someone that likes to follow a system and a procedure to get results when I was following all these different courses and not getting them results, it was affecting me. Am I not doing it right? Am I not scanning my food right? Am I not training hard enough? Am I not walking enough? Is my calorie deficit not low enough? And I was starving. So yeah, it's it was affecting my mindset because I felt like I was I was doubting myself a lot because I felt like I wasn't doing something right. Totally. What what was the hardest diet or hardest period of training that you did? So I've done some interesting. I've done stuff from the UK where I've I've shifted fat really fast, but then put it back on really fast, just as fast. So that was frustrating for me. I felt like my body really worked well without carbs at one point. So I was trying to do go keto, but that's one of the hardest diets to follow for me because it's really hard to find anything in the supermarkets when you, if you're short on time and there was a period of my life when I was trying to go keto that I didn't have the time that I've now got. So I was eating a lot on the move. I wasn't prepping my food and I was just eating shit and I just wasn't getting them results I was getting. So trying to do keto for me was really hard. Uh, then I switched it complete opposite to like high carb. And I felt like I just put a lot of weight on. I was hoping it was going to be muscle, but it wasn't. It was all fat and I, I wasn't putting any muscle on at all. So yeah, it, it's been, it was starting to get really frustrating for me, to be honest. Really frustrating. Why do you still make time for it? You know, a lot of guys in your position, like you're doing well in business. Business is good. Like everything's working well. You've got a lovely missus. You've got, you got everything that you, that you want. Why do you still make time for your health instead of being pulling that old age old bullshit I don't have time. You know, I just can't do it. I'm too busy. You know, any any of that crap. Why don't you pull that? And why do you stick to this? I think it's because I remember what I feel like, what I felt like when I was in my twenties, when I had good energy, when I had the zest for life and I had ambition and I had drive. And when I don't exercise, I feel a complete opposite to that. So even when I was training hard, not getting the results, I was still feeling better than I would be if I wasn't training. What, what effect does it have on business then when you aren't feeling at your peak and you're not training well? Yeah. If I'm not training well, um, I feel sluggish, I feel unmotivated. I'll sit in my seat all day. I wouldn't even put my stand-up desk up. I find myself blaming everybody else for things that aren't going right just because I can't be able to do anything else about it. But even like doing a 15-minute hit or something like that made me feel better, even though I wasn't seeing the results that I wanted. That bit of exercise that I was doing on a morning was making me feel so much better to come into work and just have a bit more energy about me. Totally. It's a game changer when you're the leader because you've really got to lead from the front. There's a fair bit of pressure on you. And if you're not performing, then generally, actually, I wonder if you saw that. Did you find that when you weren't at your peak that your team weren't at their peak either? Or how, how did you find that relationship between those two? That's a good question, to be honest. At the time, I probably haven't realized it. But as, as a leader, like you said there, there's nowhere to hide for you. Everybody's always watching you. You've got to do everything right. Because the minute you stop doing things the way that you want them to be done, your team will just think that they can follow and do the exact same because you've done it. As a leader, you've A, got to run the business. B, you've got to do everything right. 
and, and set an example. So I hope that I set an example by constantly dedicating time to my health and fitness, dedicating date night with my wife once a week. So we spend quality time together and, and saying to the team, I don't want you to work 24 hours a day. I actually want you to just come and do your work and then go home and enjoy your life. Well, that's the opposite to what a lot of people would do. I mean, Bill Gates was is famous for working 24 hours a day and screaming at anyone who didn't. <laughs> and that was that was his way of doing it. Maybe it's why he's such a prick now. <laughs> um, but why why is it that you don't want them to be working 24 hours a day? Why is it important for you to have all of your, for all of your employees to live a healthy life just the same way that you do? Well, down to one of my mentors one day, I, I was saying to him, I don't have enough time. I've got this and I've got that on, blah, 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 blah. And he just looked at me dead set in the eye and said, Neil, if you're working more than eight hours a day, you're just being inefficient. And if any of your team are, they're being inefficient too. And it was just like a slap in the face for me. And since then, I've dialed it right back. I am now working eight hours a day and I expect my team to work the same too, because I think if we've got the right systems and procedures in place and everybody understands what they need to do, there's no reason why we need to work 10, 12 16 hours a day to get things done. We're earning enough money. We've got a big enough team and I've got total faith in everybody that works here. I'm just looking around the office now and and seeing them all out there working away. That's cool, man. What, what effect has that had on like on your bottom line and productivity? Because that's the big concern, right? It's like if we work less, we'll make less money. Has that been the case for you? No, not really. We've been, we're continuing to grow as a business. Absolutely. Uh, the last quarter, or we're only halfway through this quarter now, but we're doing more revenue now than we have done in any other quarter throughout our history. Congratulations. Mm, thank you. And that's really, you know, I can't take the credit for that because I've got some really good people in really good positions who are working hard and doing the right things. And But I am having to rein them back in and say, look, I, I want you to stop at five o'clock because mm. I've seen emails coming through at eight, nine o'clock in the night. And I don't think it's healthy. It's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for their family life and relationship as well. And I don't want to be somebody that's forcing someone to work harder and harder and then having these effects on their personal life because personal life's got to be the number one thing in your life and work is number two. Why is that? Again, just from one of my mentors, he's always said, put yourself first and selfishly selfish. Put your partner second, your kids third if you've got kids and your work should always come fourth. Yeah. I've kind of stuck by that and I try to instill that through the business as well. We men have this really fucked up thing where we, we we think it's like a glorious sacrifice if we put ourselves last. And we always forget that when you're in a plane and they, they're going through the safety demonstration, they always say, put your own oxygen mask on first. You need to look after you because if you don't, you're going to die before you put the oxygen mask on your kid. Absolutely. And I think it's absolutely insane that more men don't actually put their health first, don't put their family first. They put themselves last. And then we wonder why we're working 16 very fucking inefficient hours per day. Really, really low productivity, terrible culture within our team because everyone's just fucking burnt out. I mean, if you had to pick between two employees, what would you choose? Someone who's burnt out and feels like crap or someone who's fresh in a daisy has, has had an amazing weekend, has a brilliant sex life with their wife or their, their, their husband. And they're absolutely crushing. I mean, who would you choose? It's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, exactly. And the, the same guy also said to me, you cannot give from an empty cup. So make sure your own cup's full first. Make sure you're confident in yourself and you're happy with yourself and that that cup will overflow into everybody else. I like that one. That's a mm-hmm. really cool one. You can't give from an empty cup. Yep. I'm going to steal that one if you don't mind. But yeah, it's super true. Yeah, 100%. So uh, for, you, for you, I was going to ask, what is your view on leadership? How should leaders act? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually just finished a book called How to Lead by David M. Rubenstein. Mm. And he interviews people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, 
Richard Branson, Phil Knight, Bill Clinton. And it was interesting. He categorizes them into different types of leaders, so builders, influencers, actual leaders. And it was interesting to hear all the different concepts on what they perceive as leadership. And I don't think there's a right and a wrong answer. But I think for me as a leader, I just want to be there for my team, to support my team. I always want to have time for my team. If they've got anything that they want to talk to me about, I want to be able to give them confidence to be the best they can be in their role. And I want to give them the tools that they need to be the best they can be in that role. I'm fortunate enough to, as I built the business, I've worked in every single role in the business that now somebody else is working in. So when they're going through a tough time on the, they're getting frustrated or they can't work something out, I've probably got the answer for them. But where we're taking the business now, we are opening up a new development arm and we're moving into a space that I'm not as experienced in. So instead of going out there and, and making my own mistakes, I've actually partnered with another developer in Perth and we're going to partner up together. And I'm going to leverage his experience and he's going to leverage our team and our skills and our investors. How did you find, how did, how did you choose that, that partner to actually partner up with? Because it's a big thing in business, right? Whenever, if you're going to merge, you're going to get into bed with someone, you're going to want to go on a few dates. How did you choose this person to partner with? Uh, it's an interesting story, actually. So the guy used to run a huge, and when I'm talking huge, they were turning over 200 million a year. So a huge development business in Perth. Mm-hmm. He was doing, he started off as a developer, then he set up a building arm and his building arm building all of his developments but he, was, he got too carried away and he, he was over leveraged and the banks recalled some of his loans in and he ended up going broke. This was in 2015, 2016. And the guy had been, had been in a bit of a dark place for a while, but he, because of his skills and experience and his reputation that he had in the industry, he kept his fingers in a few pies and he was looking for something to be involved in. So he'd been looking at some NDIS stuff, started looking at our stuff. He didn't want to just be doing standard residential again. He wanted to be doing something that was giving investors good returns. And we'd been in touch with each other since about 2017, on and off, on and off. We're doing a little bit of work together. He was helping me find some builders. He was helping me with some designs. And I reached out to him and just said, like, what are you doing with yourself? Like, in my eyes, you're an absolute hero for the business that you built. And I'd love to work. With, I'm, I'm looking to set up this side of my business. And I'd love to partner with someone with your experience who's been there and done it. And he said, yeah, it's, uh, I'd love to look at that. And he said, but I will warn you, I'm going to be very risk averse. And as a, as a business owner, that's the first thing you want to hear from someone that you're going to partner with because you don't want to be getting into bed with somebody that's going to be risky, especially when there's the type of money involved that we'll be working with. What is the type of money involved that you're going to be working with? Oh, millions, millions of dollars. Um, we've like got tens, two, hundreds? So we've got two projects at the minute and there'll be about $7 million worth of projects. Uh, this guy wants to scale it up to eight between six and eight a year. So if we're doing two projects at seven, we're probably looking at about 30 to 50 million worth of developments per year. So what's your summit? What's your big goal? It keeps changing. It keeps changing. The actual the vision for the property management business was 10,000 rooms in 10 years. Hmm. But as the business is evolving and as more opportunities are coming across the table, the hardest thing I'm finding is saying no to all these opportunities. But now with this, this new development arm, we feel we can start developing the properties and pushing them into the property management business and getting that 10,000 rooms a lot sooner than we thought we were going to get them. Mm, that's exciting. Mm. It's gone. The, the original goal was only 1,000 rooms, but since we're going to hit 450 by the end of this year, I think we're going to hit that target really fast. 
You seem like you you enjoy the conservative as a approach approach to business as opposed to being very risky. Like with me, I don't give a fuck. Like I'm pretty <laughs> pretty like like I like risk. I mean, I was just talking with one of our guys yes the other day how when COVID hit, dropped a hundred grand on mentoring the, in a month, right? When it came, because I was like, all right, well, I'm either going to go broke or we're going to do really well out of this. You know, one of the two things. So like, why did you? Why do you approach business with that that sort of philosophy of being quite calm and collected? Yeah, good question. I think the big reason is real estate is a very cash hungry game, uh, whether it's your own cash or it's other, other people's cash. And we mm. do a lot of um, we do a lot of projects with other people's money. And when we when other people are putting their money into our projects, that's their hard earned money that they've worked hard for, whether they're mum and dad investors or whether they're high net worth individuals, they've worked hard to get that lump of money. And I don't take that lightly that they want to invest that in something that we're going to run for them. And that's why I'm really conservative because I don't a Warren Buffett's rule is protect capital at all cost. And rule number two is never forget rule number one. <laughs> so I kind of take that, I kind of take that on board myself. I do not want to put anybody's capital into a risky project and also to protect my own brand and reputation. Yeah. Makes sense, man. I guess that's why you're going to have a business that's going to last the next 50, hundred years, right? Hopefully, mate. Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, totally. And so really like from this, what's your like really big goal? If we look at like your whole goal for the rest of your life and not just, not just in business, but for you as a human, I'm really, I guess I'm talking about your Everest here, right? What is like, what do you want to become? Who do you want to be? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what we're building now, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. I'd like to have more time on my hands. I'd like to travel more. Do you remember when we used to travel? It's crazy, wasn't it? (laughs) Those days. Good old days, huh? (laughs) So I want to build the property management business up to a certain size and then we'll probably sell it onto like an LJ hooker or somebody like that. They'll probably buy that rent roll and that business from us. That'll free up a lot of time from us and, and also f- release a lot of capital. And then depending on where we are with the amount of rooms that we've created so over that 10 year period, we might just scale right back and just do like three to four small developments a year so that we're still ticking over, still making you know between 500,000 and a million dollars net per year from them small developments. And we could probably do them remotely as well. So I'd like to travel a lot more with my wife and kids if we have them. Yeah. So yeah, although we are building something that's I'm moving at a fast pace now and doing some really good turnover, it's not something that I want to do forever. I want to actually sit back and enjoy some of the life that I'm creating for myself. Totally. What type of dad do you want to be? I'd love to be a dad that's there for the kids all the time. My dad, unfortunately, wasn't. My dad actually passed away in 2007 when he was 49. He, um, he had a called Huntington's career, which yeah. is similar to Parkinson's. But my dad was one of these, he worked 12 hour days in a slaughterhouse back in the UK. So he was from five o'clock in the morning or five o'clock at night. Then he went to bed at eight o'clock. I didn't really have a great relationship with my dad. So I'd like to be the total opposite of that. I love what effect did that have on you? Good question. So when I was younger, I was probably, I, was, I wasn't I was in school much. My mom and dad actually split up in probably late 90s and my mum remarries an absolute legend of a guy called Peter Mitchell and Mitch has been a great influence in my life a great influence in my life he gave me a lot of direction a lot of confidence and I was just a lost 12, 11 or 12 year old when I met him didn't have a clue what I wanted to do with my life and he was the guy that actually said being an electrician son there'll always be a demand for that in other countries and you can travel the world so I owe quite a lot to Mitch for that direction that he gave me in the early days because I was lost I was hanging around with the wrong people I was taking drugs I was drinking all the things that we shouldn't be doing. And if I look back to them days, I'm probably, you know, if there's ever anybody that shouldn't be successful, I'd probably be that person. I'm with you there. 
Yeah. <laughs> totally, man. Yeah, it's yeah. it's funny how the absence of a, of a father, my dad was awesome, very lucky, but the absence of a father really impacts kids. Like for some reason, one thing I just, this is something I'll never understand. Why society feels it's good or okay or acceptable to try and get dads out of the picture. Like we coach a lot of blokes who are going through divorces. The number of times there are loving, doting fathers who just want to see their kids that can't see their kids is fucking insane. Like the number of times, I mean, I imagine you would have seen it, particularly in your in your industry, like you see it a lot. Uh, we've got a lot of guys in building development, that trades and whatnot who go through these same issues. And I think it's one of the most insane things that we just don't emphasize like the male role model, because even in your case, you were quite lost until you had Mitch come along and actually look after you and give you that guiding hand. It's really important, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm noticing that I train, I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm a soccer coach for the under 11s in a, in a small suburb called Melville. And I'm noticing that just coaching this group of young boys to be better football players, better soccer players, they they love it. They they turn up every week and they're just keen to learn. They're, they're looking for direction. They're looking for someone who inspires them. They're looking for someone that knows what they are trying to learn. Very much like a mentor or I'm, I am a coach, I suppose. But yeah, I just think it's it's absolutely critical that dads are in kids' lives. And and men in general, because you, you, what you said is like super interesting. So there's a there's a great book called Manhood by Steve Biddle. I'm not sure if you've ever read it yeah, before. I've heard it. I've heard yeah, it. brilliant, brilliant book. I highly recommend taking a look at it. But the way that he describes how boys should be raised in particular is that we need to zero to two is like when we're attached to mum's hip. Like the boys just love the shit out of their mum. And then after that, dad becomes like the coolest thing ever. And then when dad's the coolest thing ever, he then starts introducing other mentors, and all of a sudden, dad doesn't know anything. So my dad hasn't known anything until about this year. So can we tell you, my dad's super successful as well. He ran a business with like 500 employees. He did super well, very switched on guy. I didn't fucking listen to him for like 15 years, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. But so there are all these other mentors along the way that need to step up and need to come into this position. And one thing I wanted to know is like, why did you decide to go and coach Football. Why did you coach, decide to go coach an under 11s, you know, football so, or soccer team? Yeah. So when I first moved to Australia, I was like working in this oil and gas boom, and I became really good friends with another English guy called Simon Hurton. And unfortunately, Simon passed away when he was 39. And when he passed away, he left behind two kids, and his third kid was born two weeks after he passed away. Jesus. So left his wife in a very unfortunate position. And I was heartbroken. He was one of my best friends in Australia, absolute legend of a guy. But his oldest boy at the time was seven and his mum was devastated because Simon had been taking young Gabe to football. So I said, oh, look, I'll, I'll take him on a Sunday, no problem. So I just started taking him down on a Sunday morning. I just had to pick him up, take him there, watch the game and then bring him back home. And it just helped his mum out on the Sunday morning. And then the season after that, she asked me if I could take him to training on a Wednesday night as well. So took him to training on a Wednesday night, took him to soccer on a Sunday morning. And I was just on the sideline for like the first three years. And the coach, by the way, I've, I've played soccer, not at a professional level, but I've played soccer all my life in the UK. I'm soccer, soccer mad. The coach, after the end of the third year, said, I, I need to quit as coach because it's affecting my mental health. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So the, 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 the parents all spoke amongst themselves and said, oh, does anyone want to be a coach? And I was like in the background with my hand up going, I'd love to coach them. Like, if it's not weird, me not being an actual dad, can I coach them? And because the parents had seen me on the sideline for three years cheering them on, they all said, yep. So 
Yeah, I've been the coach this season, mate. We've lost three games and we've only got two games left. So because they're under 11s, we don't officially have a ladder or a league. But if we did, we'd be top of the league right now. Why don't they have a ladder or a league? It's crazy because under a certain age, they don't want them to be competitive. They just what do you them, mean? They just want them to enjoy the game. Is that? So do do you feel that's a good? That's totally different to how I was brought up, right? But like, what do you think as a, as a coach? How do you think? I think that? it's crazy. One of the parents said to me on the first day, we got beat our first game, and the parents said to me, "Oh, as long as we lose a few and win a few, I think that's a nice balance for them." I, I said, "Nah, I'm not coaching these kids to lose a few games. I'm here to make them win every single game because." <laughs> where the fuck not, does I'm that mentality come from of, of like because I remember there were, there were times where they I remember one time my brother was playing in sport and he was actually a very good soccer player we both played soccer when we were growing up or football as you call it right yep. I remember one time they were getting flogged so bad that they, they'd stop counting right I can understand not taking the score there it was actually funny he was playing under sevens I think it was and they got beat like 60 something nil like you just weren't weren't counting right and then one of the kids from David's team went up and asked my dad, who was the coach, like, did we win? And I think from that area, like that aspect, like that's cute and that's cool. And that's really, really nice. But like, when are we going to teach kids? Like you look at why society's pussies these days, like majority of society. And I'm quite unapologetic in saying that most people are fucking soft. You just look at how people act. Mm. It's like, why do you feel we're breeding softness? Like, where does this come from? I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, you look at like some of the biggest sports stars on the planets and they would never think about coming second like Cristiano or Ronaldo. Coming second to him just isn't a thing. It's either win or we lose. It's as simple as that. And that's that's the same kind of mentality. I've never played football in my life and just thought, I'm just here for the game. I'm here to win. And I'm trying to distill that through the kids. And I'm, they're picking it up because each week they're turning up and they're keen. They're implementing the things that I'm teaching them. And they're at a really good age as well. Like you teach them something and they, they physically go out there and do it. And it warms my heart to see them doing the skills that I'm teaching them out on the football pitch and winning the games. Like we won at the weekends, this weekend just gone, we won 3-2. The weekend before that, we won 13-0. We absolutely mm-hmm. loved them. And it was just really good seeing the kids out there just enjoying themselves and doing the things that I've taught them to do. Like it fills my cup <laughs> as well as all the parents as well. It gives you goosebumps when you see kids just learning things, applying them, trying them, doing them, going through their own awesome experience of life, huh? Yeah, it's incredible mess. Incredible. So so when are you planning on having kids? Are you planning on, on having them soon? Yeah, we are. So there's obviously with the complication with my dad and Huntington's career. So that's a, a chromosome disease which can be passed down through the blood. Sister, unfortunately, has had it since she was 85 now. So I think it affected my sister when she was like 25, 26. And she's been in full-time care for the last eight years now. And she's been put on what's called end-of-life treatment. So she's currently being fed through a peg in her stomach and she's bedridden. And we're literally just waiting for it to pass away, which is horrible. Yeah. And I've never been tested. I've got none of the symptoms, but it affects you at all different ages. So what me and my wife have done in the past has been really cautious about having kids. But as things have progressed over the years, and I've started coaching the soccer team, for instance, and she said, you're just amazing with the kids. One of my mentors sent me a link to what's called pre-implantation IVF. Mm. So they can basically pull my mother's gene from my sperm because the disease was in my dad's side, not my mother's side. They can pull the disease from my mother's gene from my sperm and implant it into my wife's eggs. That's incredible. Yeah, (laughs) incredible. And they can also do it without telling me whether they find the defective gene in that sperm as well. So it's uh, called non-disclosure IVF. Wow. How awesome is modern medicine? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? 
That's super cool, man. Dude, I would love to hear how you go with that. Please keep us in the loop when you when you do if you do decide to go down that route. Yeah. We're going through the motions now because there's so many different organizations involved. We've got to go through the Huntington's Association, then we've got to go through private hospitals. So I think there's like 10 different things we've got to go through. And I think we're through point two or three at the minute. So it's Is that a good thing that there are so many organizations <clears throat> to go through? I thought it was going to be easier. If I knew it was going to take this long, we'd have probably looked into it two years ago. We'd probably be somewhere closer now, but we've probably still got another 12 months before before we can get anywhere near actually the IVF treatment itself. Why is that? Just because of all these different people and all these different bureaucracies that we've got to go through. Everyone's got to ah, tick a box and say- Bureaucrats. Got, I had to go favorite. see a psychologist the other day because if you're getting tested for Huntington's, you've got to see a psychologist because if you're told that you've got the disease, the psychologist has got to work with you to adapt you to this new way of life, knowing that you've got a disease inside you that's going to kill you at some point. That's even a fair though, point. Even though we're going through non-disclosure pre-implantation, we still have to speak to a psychologist. How was that conversation? <laughs> she was just asking me about my dad and my sister and what I knew about the disease and blah, blah, blah. And I, halfway through, I actually said to her, you do realize we're doing a non-disclosure thing. And she was like, oh, yeah, I did know that, but we've still got to go through the motions. So she's ticking the box off. So that's my thing with psychology. I think psychology is such a wonderful field and I love studying it and going through and enjoying it. But there's so much of it which is pointless because when you're just going through and ticking off a box, it takes away the whole interpersonal reaction, like relationship, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's like, you don't want to be there. She's just collecting a, ca- a check. It's like, how ineffective is that? It's stupid. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. We've got to do these things to get the result that we want. So. Totally. You just got to you know, play ball, huh? Yep, that's it. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully in the next uh, 12 months, we might get somewhere close. And then along after that, we'll have a little a little baby, which will be amazing because there's a point in our life that we thought we'd never have kids. How was that? For me, it wasn't a problem. And for my wife, it wasn't a problem because she was always very career driven. Mm. She had some really good jobs, which kept her busy for a lot of the time. So it was never really something that was on her radar. But she's got to that. She's 35 now, 36, 35. And she's getting to that age where her body's changing and she's she's considering, she's thinking she's running out of time. And then, yeah, she's obviously seen me with the kids and she's like, you'd make a great dad. I think we should have kids. And yeah. Just one thing led to another, really. Yeah. It's funny with, with women. It seems like there's just a time where it clicks yeah. and then all of all of a sudden it's like, no, nah, now, now. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's the coolest thing about being a dude though, isn't it? Is that it doesn't matter when. It's yeah. like, we're good to wear a hundred. <laughs> we can do it till the day we die. Yeah. Man, I'm, I'm super pumped for you. Thank That's you for coming on and thank you for being like so open with a lot of this stuff. It's it's really cool to get your perspective. Yeah, no problem, mate. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, 100%. Now, also, if people want to learn, because you run a podcast too, which I was just on before this. Yes. Yeah. It's like, if people want to go and find you and they want to learn more about what you're doing with property development and, on, and being an entrepreneur, how do they look you up? Yeah, so my, my podcast is called the Perth Entrepreneurs Podcast. You can find it on all the normal channels, Apple, Spotify, Google. And my business name is the HMO Property Co. You can find us on Facebook, just on the web, normal places. We specialize in high cash flow real estate. So some of our properties kicking out fifteen dollars to $30,000 a year cash flow pre-tax. It's so yeah, if you want to invest in normal real estate, but get high returns, then this is an option for people. It's really cool, man. We should get yeah. you on and chat about that sometime. That'd be really cool. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. 
done deal, man. All right. What we'll do is I'll get the the, the podcast girls who, who do all this stuff for me because I'm totally not tech savvy. Uh, <laughs> we'll get them to check your link in below. So if anyone wants to check it out, you can see the, the, the link in the description. Perfect. Thank you very Pleasure much, James. Thanks for your time, man. Thank you. Cheers, brother. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed the video. If you got something out of it and you want to learn more, click the link below or type in High Performance Conversations with James Can, and you'll be able to check out all the podcasts that we've done. We cover a stack of different topics, everything from getting your mojo back, overcoming anxiety, self-doubt, self-esteem, and learning from some of the industries and some of the world's top performers in both business and in health. Look forward to having you on there.